I'm speaking with Jeremy Glover. Jeremy's interest in cities began while he was a college student in St. Paul, Minnesota, and his passion for cities blossomed while living in New York City. This led Jeremy to pursue a career as a transportation planner. His focus is on rebalancing streets to provide more opportunities for active transportation while promoting density in areas that are well served by public transportation. I want to begin by talking a little bit about your background. Where did you grow up? I grew up in a small town called Eureka, Missouri, outside of St. Louis. Very unremarkable. When I was a kid, I think there were probably about four or 5,000 people there. So very small. If you go out any further than Eureka, you are just in rural Missouri. So I'm from the suburbs of St. Louis, but just barely. There were farm kids in my high school. So I grew up in a very car-dependent place. I grew up in a new greenfield subdivision, and I pretty much had free reign within that subdivision. But when you got to the entrance, it was like that was where my world ended. And even the shortest errand required a car. So very different from where I ended up choosing to live. How would you say that experience of growing up there helped to shape you? It shaped me in that I knew I wanted to get out of there. It was, well, culturally, not really a fit for me. And I knew I wanted to get out of Dodge. And I would say that the way growing up in Eureka shaped me was that, well, it didn't shape me in any ways that I'm proud of. In fact, I think I had to unlearn a lot of things that I had learned or just picked up on growing up, especially in the way I thought about cities. In Eureka, the city was a bad place, a dangerous place. Listening to the news, you only ever heard bad things about St. Louis. St. Louis in the 90s wasn't exactly paradise. It was experiencing a lot of the same problems that Chicago was experiencing in the 90s with really high crime and disinvestment and population loss and all those things. Of course, St. Louis never really recovered from that in the way that Chicago has. Yeah, and I grew up in a virtually 100% white community. The only people of color I knew were kids who were bused in from St. Louis. And I had a very small and narrow worldview. And when I left, I went to undergrad at McAllister College in St. Paul, Minnesota, which felt like the big city to me. I was living without a car. I was biking everywhere. And that was really, I think, where my interests in cities and urbanism kind of first started. I loved the Twin Cities. It's a really great place for like being the first city that I lived in. I couldn't have really picked better than the Twin Cities just because of how bikeable they really are, how ahead of the curve they have been with bike infrastructure by U.S. standards at any rate. And college was really where I think my interest in cities first began just by virtue of living in one and being in such a different environment than I had grown up in, surrounded by people. I grew up in the woods like literally just incredibly low density. It was kind of isolating. So being in a city and being on a college campus too, of course, like being surrounded by people, it was just exciting, energizing, felt right. And I knew I didn't want to ever move back to the suburbs. What was the draw of getting into planning for you? Well, I did not even really know that urban planning existed, really. 
I was actually an econ major, which in retrospect was not the right degree for me. I should have been a geography major, but hindsight is 2020. And I followed a girl to New York from the Twin Cities. The girl is now my wife, so it ended up being a good decision for me. But I moved to New York City just kind of on a hope and a dream without a job. And living in New York, I became enamored with the city, with streets, and I got really into riding. I rode everywhere. Riding a bike is the best way to discover a city, to learn about its history, to explore its neighborhoods, because it's a lot faster than walking. You can cover a lot more ground, but you're still so present and the environment is right there. Being inside of a car, you're just in a bubble and you can't really get a sense of your environment. And I mean, I love the train. Of course, the New York City subway, incredible, but you're underground. So you don't really see a whole lot. At least you're underground in most places. But yeah, I rode everywhere. Well, I rode the train a lot too, of course. And I had a very random job. I ended up working in publishing. And the office was on 31st Street and 10th Avenue in Manhattan, which at the time was literally like the wild, wild west. There was nothing over there. Now that's the epicenter of Hudson Yards. And I worked in this little old building, had like 12 stories. So by Manhattan standards, a little piddly pre-war building that had the slowest elevator in all of Manhattan. And we had these big windows that looked west. And you could see across the river to the Palisades and to New Jersey. And it was a beautiful view. And we overlooked this huge rail yard. And then they started to dig over there. And I was like, what is going on over there? They were digging very big holes. And I started to pay attention and I learned, oh, well, they're building this huge development here, Hudson Yards. They're literally going to build a giant platform on top of this rail yard and then build a bunch of skyscrapers on top of it. And it was so interesting to me. And I had a front row seat to this taking place that I got really interested in development and I got really into skyscrapers. And that just kind of led me down a rabbit hole of like land use and zoning and issues that pertains to urban planning, in addition to already loving the transportation side of things. And I was just fascinated by this stuff and reading about it all the time and telling my friends about it and being super annoying. And I just remember once, might have been New Year's Eve or something, I don't know, I had a friend visiting in town and I was blah, 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 talking about some developments or bike lane or urban issue. And he just stopped me and said, why don't you go to grad school for urban planning? And I was like, huh, I never thought of that. (laughs) I just literally had never thought of that. And so I did because I was, like I said, working a very kind of random job that I was not passionate about at all. (laughs) It was just a way to live. And so I went to grad school and uh, I went to Rutgers. So I moved across the river to Jersey City. So I had to get that in-state tuition. And yeah, the rest is kind of history. When it came time to leave New York, was that a hard thing to leave behind? It ended up being not as hard as I thought it would be. I was really worried because I loved the city. I love architecture. I love history. I love trains. And 
living in New York, there's just nowhere like it. It is kind of a magical place. And being there in my 20s was super fun. You're not really that concerned about saving money and you're okay living in a shoebox and just living life. And I was definitely worried that it was going to be hard to leave. And I kind of felt, how is anything going to stack up to New York City after I've lived here? So in a sense, the fact that I lived in Jersey City for a couple of years while I was in grad school before leaving the East Coast, it's kind of a nice way to ease me out of <laughs> New York a little bit. Jersey City, you're still right there. You can take the PATH train right into the city, into Manhattan. It's functionally like just part of the subway. And then Jersey City is almost like a sixth borough in a sense, but it's different and it's a little removed. So I was spending a lot more time in New Brunswick, New Jersey, than I was in New York. So yeah, I kind of eased my way out softly. But there were all these things that I cared about what was happening in the city. And it was feeling a little sad to be disconnected from the things that I had come to be interested in and care about. But at the same time, by this point in time, I was married, wanted to start a family and just didn't feel realistic to do that in the city. It obviously can be done. Hundreds of thousands of people are doing it, if not millions. But it just didn't feel right for us. My wife was never as big of a New York City fan as I was either. So we developed kind of a short list of cities that would meet both of our needs. I really wanted to be able to bike commute wherever we moved to. She wanted somewhere that was just a little less intense. And so we actually were looking at moving to Minneapolis or Philadelphia or Chicago. Those were the three main cities. So those were where I was focusing my job hunt after I finished grad school. My wife was working as a consultant at the time and had kind of flexibility that she could work remote from kind of anywhere while she transitioned to a new job. And it worked out that I got a job in Chicago and that's what I ended up here. Though it was definitely, I think, at the top of those three, in part because I have family here. My brother lives here. And in part because I was a little preoccupied with the superlative and I wanted like if I wasn't going to live in the biggest city then I wanted to live in like the next biggest city at least the next biggest that was on my list of cities to pick from and I remember I came out here for an interview and it felt really exciting it was so different but also felt very familiar in a lot of ways and so I just was really excited to experience a brand new city because despite the fact that I grew up in St. Louis I had not spent very much time in Chicago at all I had come up a couple times on like field trips and I came up on a band trip in high school I was in band but I didn't really know hardly anything about it so by that point in time having become a big city nerd the idea of moving to a brand new city was really exciting and when I got here I just dove right into everything the history just read as much as I could like inhaled local media trying to get the lay of the land and I think in the first couple of years I lived here I don't even know how many pages of stuff I read but Chicago quickly felt like home very quickly felt like home and it felt like it had been really the right choice for me and my family. What are some of the things that you really enjoy about living in Chicago? It is a big city 
with big city amenities, but everything is easier here than New York, except for like, if you want to live without a car. Actually, I do have a car. I drive. As shocking as my Twitter followers might find that, I actually drive a lot. I also bike a lot and take transit a lot. I'm very multimodal. But yeah, having a car in Chicago makes things easier. It does. And having a car in Chicago is a lot easier than having a car in New York. That's for sure. But yeah, everything here is not quite so crowded. The cost of living is way better. I remember when I moved here, our first place here was in Wicker Park, and it was within walking distance to the L, the Damon Stop in Blue Line. And we were paying like $17.50 or something like that for a two-bedroom. And I would like tell people here that, and they'd be like, whoa, that's a lot. And I was like, what? That is so cheap. Like, insanely. I just had a completely different frame of reference. But yeah, I mean, Chicago just has so many incredible assets. The park system, despite the Chicago Park District's best efforts to spoil it, they can't. The foundation is too strong. The parks are amazing. The forest preserves, the architecture. I mean, I love the buildings, the built environment here. The food's amazing. The people. I'm a Midwesterner. I grew up in the Midwest. I went to school in the Midwest. My parents are Midwest. It's who I am. And New Yorkers are not as mean as stereotyped, but it's a different vibe here. And it is more my vibe. It just is. It's just who I am. I love just being able to walk around, bike around, and enjoy the beautiful city that we live in. What are some of the shortcomings of Chicago from your perspective? Well, I could talk a lot about this. First of all, through my professional work, I have met so many people working in governments at every level, regional, local, state, county, sub-regional. And there are so many good people, dedicated people, smart people working in government here, passionate about the city and the region. But there's a lot of institutional inertia that they're fighting against. I think Chicago's biggest problem, I mean, I think most people would agree, is the systemic disinvestment that has happened in different parts of the city that have led to all the bad things that come with when you pull all the resources out of a place. Crime, depopulation, economic loss, that, of course, is a big problem, our biggest problem. It's also the hardest problem to solve, probably, or at least it will take time. I think the city doesn't really plan. Like, we don't do urban planning in Chicago. Like, to talk more about things that are within my professional worldview experience, we don't really plan here. We zone. We don't plan. Land use planning doesn't really happen like, I'll give you an example. This happened a while ago. I've tweeted about this before. There's an intersection, Damon, Elston, and Fullerton. It is one of Chicago's many six-pointed intersections where three main major arterials all come together, and it's a big mess. Chicago is a grid, except it has this handful of diagonal streets that cut through and muck everything up. Elston is one of those streets. And this intersection was a traffic nightmare. There was just like an expanse of pavement, very dangerous for people on foot, really for people in any mode. And so CDOT decided they were going to untangle this mess to try to get traffic moving and to make it a little less harrowing for pedestrians and cyclists. So they bent Elston kind of around the intersection 
of the two north, south, east, west streets to meet everything kind of at right angles and make the traffic patterns a little more neat, predictable, less complex. And so they spent some big sum of money to fix this. But then when they bent Elston around, it created this big space now in the middle. It had belonged to other parcels, but it was kind of this new land in the center of this group of streets. And they developed it. What did the city decide to allow to be built there? They built a Panera and they built a Chick-fil-A, both of which had drive-thrus. So they spent tens of millions of dollars to untangle this mess of streets to fix the traffic. And then in the middle of it all, they put two brand new drive throughs that would do nothing but generate more traffic and have more people turning in and out off of the streets surrounding this intersection. So I always bring up this example because it's the perfect illustration of how city agencies aren't talking to each other. CDOT did this redesign. DPD does the developments, approval, the zoning, things of that nature. And clearly there was no plan. They didn't talk to each other because why would they have allowed these land uses if the whole point of this project had been to improve traffic flow around here? And that sort of thing happens just constantly everywhere in the city. I focus a lot on my neighborhood, Logan Square, because I'm always walking around here, looking at things, getting irritated. And down on North and Western, this is something else that happened within the last year or so. There had been a pizza hut at the corner of West, North, and Northwestern, and it closed. And and so it sat vacant forever. There was this big vacant lot right there on the corner, these two huge streets in a hot, hot neighborhood where housing prices had just been going up, up, up because it was so popular. Seemed like this is prime, a prime spot for development. It was also a transit served location by three different measures. Transit served location means that it's eligible for the city's TOD bonuses. So residential and commercial development, they can build less parking or sometimes no parking. They can get density bonuses, all these incentives to try to densify in areas that are well served by transit. Guess what they built there? Another drive through Yeah, they built a Chipotle and they built a Quick Mart. Two little one-story buildings surrounded by surface parking lots, one of which had a drive through At this busy, busy corner where also, like, you shouldn't be building things that are just going to get more people to drive to this spot. In an area served by transit, it was within a half mile of two different blue line stops. It's on the 49, one of the most highly road bus routes in the city, the Western Avenue bus. It's always in the top five, usually I think top three highest ridership in the whole city. North Avenue bus route, nothing to sneeze at. But who approved that? Why was that approved? Chicago sets all of these laudable goals. They love to make plans. Make no small plans. We really love to take that to heart. The problem is we don't follow the plans. The city's climate action plan, the new climate action plan, it's great. We will. It's great. They're both great planning documents. Show me how the city council has used those documents to make decisions. You can't because they don't. There's a disconnect there. And that's a big problem in my view. And it's a tricky one to solve because it's political in a lot of ways. Aldermanic prerogative is part of the problem. Nobody wants to say, well, are you sure about this development in your ward? Because it actually doesn't really 
fit with the climate action plan, for instance. Hey, this development here, it's actually going to just generate a lot of single occupancy vehicle trips. Maybe we should think about this. Well, if you poo-poo on their thing, they're going to come poo-poo on your thing in your ward. And so nobody wants to say no to other people's things. And that's an oversimplification for sure. But that dynamic does exist. And I think city agencies, part of the issue is that just they run such a tight ship that there's not enough staff to really educate the city council. Personally, I think that's a big problem because we don't have a lot of money lying around. We've got fiscal constraints in this city. Well, that's another big challenge, I think. Obviously, the pension obligations is kind of a shadow that exists over everything. It's not a reason to do nothing, but it is a very real constraint. And I think the last administration, the life administration, deserves some credit for trying to right that ship and get the city back on track in terms of paying down our pension obligations. And Johnson administration is doing the same thing, but they haven't been very generous with staffing up city departments. There was like a huge debate recently. The alderman wanted to have more money to hire one extra person. And it was like a big thing. It was like, no, 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 no. We can't do that. Like one extra person. Uh, granted, it's 50 extra people, technically, but 50 extra salaries that give for being on us is a drop in the bucket. But there's an austerity mindset in city government, I think, that makes it hard to plan makes it hard to educate our elected officials who are not experts like why would they be but you see the results of that all over the place so you talked earlier about depopulation and you were talking about some of these cases too where there were automobile oriented land uses built in areas that are well served by transit what is the importance of building higher density in areas that have good public transportation i think Density solves a lot of problems. If we want to be a more transit-oriented city, if we want to see real mode shift away from single occupancy vehicles, we need more people. You can't support a world-class transit system without a certain density of people. And we're a city that's built for 4 million people. There were almost 4 million people here in 1950, and now we have 2.7 million people. So I think increasing our density won't just help transit. It'll help everything. It'll help our finances. It'll help our school system. It'll help us maintain our infrastructure. And obviously, it'll help the environment. There's no better way to conserve resources, including land, than to build densely. We're a region that has sprawled enormously and are still sprawling at the region's peripheral area down in Will County, out in Kendall and Kane County. And in that respect, there's a bit of a lack of regional planning where we as a region can say, you know what, it's actually better for everybody if we focus growth in the core rather than out on the edges. But People are very parochial in a sense, and also like people have financial incentives to chase that greenfield development. I'm a believer of the strong towns philosophy in that suburban sprawl is the illusion of wealth. You get kind of a quick hit of wealth creation, but in the long run, it's completely insolvent. 
the land use cannot sustain itself. And not everything needs to be profit generating. Absolutely not. But when you build miles after mile after mile of suburban sprawl, someday down the road, you're going to have to pay the Pied Piper. And that day is coming. That day has come for a lot of suburbs in the region that are really struggling, especially in the south suburbs. Some really, really dire situations down there. I mean, like there were places where they didn't even have drinking water because they couldn't afford to maintain their infrastructure like just really bad stuff. And that's going to keep happening because it's a failed model. It doesn't work in the long run, but in the short run, people make a lot of money. So they keep doing it. But in terms of what Chicago can do, there are things that I think the city is really far behind on when it comes to our peers. Ending parking minimums, eliminating single family zoning, Those two things right there should be easy to do. You've got little tiny cities by comparison doing this kind of stuff. And it's not even on people's radar. It's not even like we're talking about, but we should be. Zoning reform just generally. You've seen in other places like Minneapolis, for instance, where they eliminated single family zoning on paper. But then when there's all these additional kind of bulk and density and setback requirements, it's like, okay, so technically I'm allowed to build a fourplex here. But because of the bulk and density requirements, I can't. So essentially, you didn't get rid of single family zoning. You just kind of did it on paper. Chicago should learn from those examples. The way that the city does zoning here, it's a tool to extract concessions from developers. We know, okay, this lot here, actually, yeah, there probably should be a five over one here, but currently it has a far of 0.8 or something like that. We know though that the developer will come to us and they'll say, okay, we all know that actually there should be a five over one here. So what do we have to do so that we can build this? Okay. So you want us to build 20% affordable housing. Okay, fine. That's the way we do zoning here. And I'm not saying necessarily that's bad. I mean, there's pros and cons. The affordability requirements ordinance here actually has been like really successful. A lot of people dislike inclusionary zoning, but that has been really successful. And I think it's something the city should be really proud of. But in an ideal world, we would zone for what we want there and then just let people build it and putting a little bit of faith in like the supply side of the affordable housing kind of solution. I mean, I'm not a housing expert. I should just put that on the record. It needs to be a balance of taking the supply approach and also building affordable housing that's income restricted and all that stuff. There has to be a balance, but our zoning map is so all over the, you just look at that thing and it is clear that there was no thought put into it. It's just a complete patchwork that is not rational at all. And it really just needs to be thrown in the trash and we need to start from scratch because just doing it on an ad hoc basis. And this is where the aldermanic prerogative issues come back in. That you're relying on the enlightened <laughs> aldermen to make the decisions that are best for the public at large, rather than what their loudest constituents want them to do. And that's not a winning system. That's what we have right now. And you'll see some areas where it is kind of working because the aldermen get it. And you see a lot of other areas where it's not working. And yeah, we just kind of need to take some of that stuff out of the kind of political process 
everything's political, of course, but we need to come together as a city and say, this is what we want. And here's our zoning map that aligns with that. And then let the chips fall rather than do everything kind of as a one-off deal. It's just not a smart way to plan. The answer to fixing transit, well, a lot of it is land use. And then the other part of it is actually having the courage to rebalance our streets, which is something that we're lacking. We want to talk about problems that the city is having, weaknesses of the city. And this is certainly not unique to Chicago, but we have just a wealth of street space. We're blessed to have such a rational and orthogonal grid. And every half mile, we have a street that's 100 feet wide, 100 feet wide. And that's just so much space. You can do so much with 100 feet. And all we would have to do is take 10% of those streets and dedicate them to transit. And we'd have an incredible system. And the other 90%, let the cars have it. Keep driving. I drive. I'm not anti-car. But we have to rebalance our streets. And it's not about taking away. We're not taking away. This is something that is on the planning profession. Transportation planners, we're bad at messaging. Perfect example. Road diet. Nobody likes diets. When you say road diet, people think mm, you're taking something away. No, actually, we are giving you more choice. We are increasing your options because before you really only had one choice and that was you have to drive. Now you have a safe place to ride your bike or you have transit that you can actually rely on and you can still drive. We're not saying you can't drive. We have increased your choices. So we're not taking anything away. We're actually giving you more. And that's a message that is not getting through to people. And like I said, in Chicago, we have so much space. Our roads are just a blank slate. We could really do so much. It's an exciting thing. I'm very optimistic that in the future, we're going to see some big changes. I think CDOT, to their credit, is being, I think, a lot more creative in the last few years with how they're thinking about street space and rebalancing street space. I think especially on the neighborhood kind of side, I think the neighborhood greenway design that they're implementing on a lot of streets is a winning formula and it's encouraging to see. The big arterial streets, those hundred foot wide streets, they're a little less bold there, but I'm encouraged by the recent Better Streets for Blesses plan. I think it could have been a little stronger in its commitment to kind of restarting the BRT bus, if you will, in Chicago. But that was a real collaborative effort between CTA and CDOT. And to see the two of those agencies working closely together is exciting. And I'm optimistic that that's going to yield some real results down on the road because we have to rebalance our streets. The car has been king for decades now. And I think we're all seeing that we need to rethink that, not just because of climate, but traffic violence is just at horrible levels right now. Everybody sees how crazy drivers have gotten since the pandemic. It's like a switch flipped in their brains. Once they saw those empty streets, they never went back. And I include myself in there. When I get behind the wheel of a car, I'm a completely different person. When I'm riding my bike, I'm like in the bike lane and people are flying by me, buzzing me. I'm like, God, what is these driver's problems? Like, give me the space. And then when I'm driving, there'll be a guy takes the lane in front of me. I'll be like, ah, get to the side of the road. You're slowing me. I really believe driving changes 
the way you think. And it makes you mean. And I definitely include myself in that. And there is no denying that they have gotten a lot more dangerous, their driving behavior. Not to mention every year, there's more and more and more distractions inside the automobile. So now is the time for the safety reason, for the climate reasons, equity reasons, economic reasons. We got to rebalance the streets and we're going to be a stronger, more resilient, wealthier, more just city if we do that. I really believe that. In closing, how do you think that your tweets about planning are helping to advance this conversation? I certainly have kind of developed a knack for understanding the kind of content that gets engagement, that gets people to engage. But oftentimes, it's not the content that moves the conversation forward. And so that's a struggle for me. I certainly like to raise awareness of issues like traffic violence, like just general car dependence and its impacts on our city and development and land use planning and how we're not doing it. Um, but it's easy to take cheap shots and get a lot of likes. And I'm trying to do less of that because at the end of the day, it's just not that productive. But I do enjoy making maps and making visuals that bring to light the things that our city are grappling with. And I like to put things out there without adding a whole lot of my own opinion to it and then just kind of see what people take from it. And a lot of times they will like be saying things that I definitely disagree with. But it's interesting to see what different people take from things. And once you hit a certain level of like followers on Twitter, you break out of the bubble a little bit. Like for a while, you're just in your little bubble of urbanists and transportation advocates and cyclists and everybody agrees. But then when you hit like a certain level, I feel like when you hit like 4,000, 5,000 kind of followers, suddenly now people outside your bubble are seeing your stuff and they're jumping in and they got stuff to say. And sometimes you're like, okay, block. But sometimes it's like, oh, actually, you know, this is the viewpoint that I've been missing. So that's been kind of an interesting part of becoming like a slightly bigger account. But yeah, I mean, professionally right now, I'm a freelance consultant. So in a way, my Twitter or X platform is kind of a way for me to just say, hey, this is what I do. And these are the things I care about. And if these are the things you want done or you need done, or these are the things you care about, well, here I am. That's kind of what Twitter has been for me. Certainly it has been sad to see it get so well, it's not what it used to be. Let's just say that. But I think it's going to be a hard platform to kill. I think it's just got too much momentum. So I think it's going to outlive Elon Musk. Thank you for taking time to talk. It's been a pleasure hearing your perspective on cities and hearing your passion for cities and transportation. Thank you for having me. It was fun.